Today's verse is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other that passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him gave them to the to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend i will repay you when i come back which of these 3 do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers he said the one who showed him mercy and jesus said to him you go and do likewise that is the word of god We're getting toward the end of our series on mercy. This is uh, part nine. Next week we'll close out this series, and then we'll get into some Christmas messages. But today we're going to look at the, this important passage, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. This is the second time we're looking at this passage. Last week we focused on the first half of the passage, which was really a very challenging message about racism, of how we tend to overlook and exclude people of our neighbors and not show them mercy, well, because they're the wrong race or ethnicity and different than we are, and hence we don't tend to embrace them as people that we should um, show love and mercy to. Today we're going to look at the second half of the passage, and we're going to um, you know, entertain a question, which is how far do we have to go? Um, to what extent do we need to go to show mercy, and I think that's what um, the second half of the passage um, is, is uh, challenging us to wrestle with. In three parts, as I usually do, part one, how much compassion should we have? How much compassion should we have? Part two, what kind of mercy should we pursue? Um, many of us may tend to think um, mercy is, well, isn't that, isn't that like giving you know, money to a beggar or, or, or serving at a soup kitchen or something like that. But there's more. There's a lot more. And, and most of us only have this kind of monolithic way of thinking about it. So that's the question in this part two. What kind of mercy should we pursue? And part three, the God who empowered us to be fully human. The God who empowered us to be fully human. Let's get into our passage. Um, let's get into chapter 10. I want you to go to verse 33. Now, you know, as most of you are familiar with this passage, um, but if you're not, 
there's a, uh, there's a man, he's on his way, he's, uh, he's beaten, robbed. And then there are two people that see him. First is a priest. In other words, he's a holy man. <laughs> he's supposed to be religious. He's supposed to be righteous. He's supposed to know the Bible. And shouldn't he not do all throughout the Old Testament is words about how you should show mercy to your neighbor. But this guy, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's very telling. He kind of decides to walk along the other side of the street. Avoid this, okay? Next person is a Levite. A Levite is one who works in and for the temple. He's one who, who, who pretty much manages and runs the temple. Now, a quick word about the temple. Um, we, mostly we tend to think of it as like a religious building or institution. But understand, this is the absolute center of Israelite faith. And if you are um, a person who um, is one of the people who manages and administers the temple, um, that is a really, that's something more like um, being the secretary, you know, operating in the, sec like being in the secretary of state and run. It is a tremendously important and a powerful institution in the culture. So we're talking a very respectable man. We're talk talking probably someone who's well-educated, um, upper middle class. And so not just religious, but there's a, there's a class aspect of it too. And he does the same thing. Well, I don't think so. Walk around. And then comes a Samaritan, someone whom Jews think don't have the right religion. They, got, they have corrupted blood because they've intermarried with other people. They have wrong theology. They have wrong religious um, rituals. Uh, and probably the morality is not very good. And, and it's a straight-up form of racism. <laughs> it's not just race. It's all of it. Race, ethnicity, culture, all of it put together. And Jesus makes this person the hero of the story. So let's pick up there, verse 33. Um, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That is the person who was beaten and robbed. And when he saw him... He had compassion. There's that question. So this is how much compassion are we supposed to have? And I'm drawing it right from this passage. So he that is Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. So let's just stop there for a moment. Um, I, I'm not sure how, how he has. Maybe he was traveling. Why does he have uh, supplies and and if you're, you know, if it's maybe you or me, would you do this? I mean, um, if you are a person that stopped, maybe called 911, <laughs> and, and then said, okay, I, I'm sorry, I got to go, <laughs> because, you, you know, because I'm a, a busy Silicon Valley person, and I have a flight to catch in a couple hours. Or I have a very important appointment, or a lunch appointment, or, or you know, our, our group meeting, and then, and of course, there's traffic, so, you know, I don't know if I can stay too long, but... I mean, we would be appreciated to a person who would even stop, check, call 911. And those are some of the advantages we have. But this guy has bandages. <laughs> he stops, binds a person's wounds, and then he pulls out oil and wine. Now, let me, let me, let me break that down a little bit. Um, in, you know, if you're traveling and you walk, would, most of us would probably carry water. But water is actually clean, pure water. is kind of actually a luxury in this day. Wine is a common drink, and there's all kinds of gradations of wine, even as today, but um, wine is just the kind of thing you just drink. <laughs> that sounds a little strange, all right? Um, and um, because it's, it's a lot less likely to, to, to be contaminated, it has alcohol, 
And so you go to somebody's house and they're going to serve you wine, not because it's a fancy drink, but because it's just a common drink. So he offers them his drink. And then he also puts on oil. Now, what does this mean? Um, oil in this culture has lots of different purposes, but one of the purposes is medicinal. <laughs> and so you would put oil on a person um, if they have wounds, if there is some type of, of, of a hurt. And by the way, any kind of oil that you use for something that's not just like, or, um, even fragromatic oils or something like that would be expensive. But something that would be medicinal, that would be pricey. And I don't know why he's carrying it. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe this person um, has a family member that they're going to go visit, and that person has some kind of illness. And so, you know, you go visit your family, and, and if you can bring something like that, that would be good, right? But maybe if you're sick, you, that's something that you would have to spend a lot of money on, and you'd have to use it. And here is a person now. He stops, binds up their wounds, and then pulls out wine, gives them something to drink, and spends a good bit of his money, something that is valuable, on this person who's hurting. Let's continue. Then he set, that is a um, Samaritan, set this person, this hurting person, on his own animal. That means now he's going to walk. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. So, you know, if I, in this day and age, if you saw someone like you called 911, that would be a good Samaritan if you called 911. If you called 911 and waited for the ambulance to arrive, you'd be a really good person. But that's today, but what if the person got into the ambulance, actually went with you to the hospital, and sat with you? Because maybe you don't have insurance or something like that and help start. I mean, this is something I'm just trying to, even this isn't really enough to show you how extraordinary um, this Samaritan is behaving. So he takes him to an inn and he doesn't just go in and says, well, you know, I got you a room. So why don't you just rest in there and hope you, hopefully you'll get better. I'll pray for you, man. <laughs> right. But he actually goes in and takes care of this person you know, at the local Marriott or Hilton, you know, where he, of course, you know, he has nice Hilton points, right? And then he goes in um, and takes care of him. And then let, note the next verse. And the next day, and the next day. So you know what that means? So this is how a, a lot of, of, of biblical narrative is. It's, it's, it's simple. It doesn't seem like there's a lot being said, but there's tremendous things being said. So that means... If he goes to the innkeeper the next day, what does that mean? <laughs> that means he spent the night. <laughs> the person is so hurting, decided, you know what, I, I need to stay. <laughs> so he not only spent the money on, on his something that was important, then he spent money for the room in the inn. He himself spends the night. So now he's spending lots of money. He is completely spending tons of time. I mean, whatever he was doing, I mean, he's, not, he's going to be a whole, at least one whole day late, right? And he's already spent the money on the oil. He is already inconvenienced, so his feet are hurting because now he didn't get to ride his animal. And then he says to the innkeeper, um, he pulls out two denarii, and he gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him, 
and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So what's a, a denarius? That's, that's a, a denarius is one day's worth of wages. Denaria is plural. And a denarius is one day's worth of wages. So just I want you to think about how much money you make in a given year. And then try to divide it by all the number of days that you typically work in a given year. Um, I don't know, let's just say you make, some of you guys make pretty good money, so let's just, this is Silicon Valley, so let's just say you make 100 grand. <laughs> and in a typical year, let's say you work about 250 days. I'm just, you know, that's, that's ballpark, okay? Um, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's serious money. Yeah. Two days worth of wages, it's pretty significant money. And then he's already expended his time and his energy, and then he says to him, whatever more it takes, I'm going to come back. So now he's not only given up the day and he's given up the night, he's going to come back. <laughs> he's going to come back to make sure this guy's okay, and he's going to pay even more money on top of that. That's the story. And then Jesus asked this question, so who do you think was the neighbor? And then the answer is, the guy who showed, and there's our word, mercy. The one who showed mercy. And in our modern day, we tend to think of mercy as like this feeling that you have. You see someone who's hurting, or someone who needs some forgiveness, and if you show mercy on that person, it's like a feeling, it's a good intention that comes out, that's in our, but that's not the way the Bible puts it. There is a compassion, but that compassion, it leads to action. It actually leads to cost. That's mercy. Mercy, according to Jesus, the mouth of Jesus, out of the scripture is not even just an intention and a feeling, but it leads to action, which even entails significant costs. So what is mercy? It's, this is such a famous story that I'm sure you all heard it. And even if you haven't heard it, you know of it. I mean, even, even people who don't believe in Jesus know of this story. It's such a common phrase, the Good Samaritan. This is the Good Samaritan. It's like a holy man to the nth degree. That's what it's like. I mean, who would do this? Okay, how many people would do this in our city? Um, probably, like, you could count them <laughs> on one hand. Um, maybe Mother Teresa, if she showed up in our city. But since she's already, you know, she already did this in India. So it's, but it's like Mother Teresa has to do this. That's the good smart. So when we're asking this question, how far are we supposed to go? Well, the answer is to insane lengths. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really an impossible standard. Now, there's some things I want to say about this. Um, are we actually supposed to obey this? The, uh, if, I wouldn't preach this if the answer isn't yes. Because you also notice the, other, the, 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 the verse at the end there. Jesus says, you go and do the same thing. That's basically what he says. You go and do the same thing. Who is he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to anybody who says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. He's talking to us. And um, how is that possible? And this is, I mean, do you notice that we've looked at multiple passages in the Gospel of Luke, and they're all kind of like this. They're all, Jesus, here's how we're going to show um, mercy and love to our neighbor. And then we, you know, we kind of want it to be some really easy, manageable standard. It's like, I'll give $5 out of my you know, pocket and I'll call 911 or something like this. But that's none of this. And I want to I say a couple things as we wrestle with, with this um, verse. On the one hand, 
Most of us, when we live here in the 21st century, we're, we're, you know, we live in America, we're highly individualistic culture. And when we read this passage, we see one person doing this thing, this like seemingly superhuman piece of righteousness for another person, and we just think, okay, 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 whatever. And then the, the cynical ones of us just go, okay, okay, whatever. That's, that's all like pie in the sky talk. Um, but understand that Jesus gave this story for a, a vision. It's a vision, it's a vision casting parable. I mean, this isn't a piece of history because it probably would have never happened. But he's casting a picture of how people who follow him ought to do things. And the first thing I want to say is, this is something that's impossible for any one person to do. Even if you were to do this once in your life, let's say you actually, you had an incident like this and you actually did this. I I knew a brother um, when he was in college. Um, He went to Berkeley. And if you've ever been to Berkeley, you know there's a lot of beggars. He actually took the time, the guy said he was really hungry, and he actually took the time to take the person out to lunch and get to know them and actually treat them like a real human being. And it's like the one time he did it. And, I, and when he told me the story, I sat there and said, wow, you're, you're like the good Samaritan, you know, at least kind of a junior version of it or something. And I was like, I, I wouldn't do that. And if we were to do that once in our life, that would be a pretty remarkable piece of, of righteous deed, right? But that's not, even that isn't, it falls short of, of the call of Jesus. So it's a, really on one level, as an individual, it's something impossible for us to do. But corporately, corporately, together, as a people, it is very possible to do. And indeed, that is the way Israel was supposed to be. There's all kinds of um, commands of the way Israel was supposed to operate in the laws. And, so, you know, today... One of the things that um, we, are, if you have any kind of wisdom and you want to make a difference in terms of poverty, in terms of hurt and injustice, because a lot of the times poverty isn't just about, uh, you know, I don't have a job or I'm hungry, but there's also injustice in the systems of our country that, I mean, there's a reason why certain people live in certain neighborhoods and all the people of one skin color are there, and then the schools there aren't, bad, aren't good, and the reason the schools aren't good is guess what? <laughs> Because the people who have power in that in, in our society don't tend to treat those schools with a certain level of equality of care. See, that's, that's a piece of injustice. And when all these things are done, these are things that we cannot tackle alone, but corporately together. And if you have wisdom in this thing, you're not going to go out there and do this all by yourself. You need to go out there and find a team. Find a people who have like-minded heart. But here's the important thing. We, we, this is something we obey corporately together. We can be good Samaritan together. But this is important. If you as an individual or I as an individual, one person, if one person does not have compassion like this person, as an individual, if we do not have this kind of vision and compassion, guess what? We'll never have the, the corporate. So on the one hand, We can't do it as an individual, and we need to do it together. But on the other hand, if we, you yourself, we will never, we won't even, we won't even support the ministry. (laughs) We won't pray for the ministry. We won't volunteer for the ministry. Maybe we won't even like pick up the energy and expertise to go because a lot of this is going to take some real energy and sacrifice of money. We won't even have that if we as an individual don't swallow this vision and a faith. Now let me make, let me point something out to you. There are tremendous ministries, uh, even around the world. We have these international NGOs, 
A lot of them, by the way, were Christian or started by Christians and not. Thankfully, and I praise the Lord for even secular, um, you know, international ministries or even that, that do really good work of, 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 of mercy toward our neighbors. But a lot of them were Christian. And most of the international NGOs that are around the world, do you know where they come from? Where they come from? They come from the West. And in fact, not even just the West, a lot of them, especially some of the most effective ones, come from the United States. And why is that? Is that because there are no kind-hearted people in Africa or in Asia or South America? No. The reason why, they, why most of them come from the West and especially from America is because those are the countries that have been steeped in the Bible and they've read, guess what? Luke chapter 10. And they've read this and they have been convicted by it. They have been inspired by it. And as individuals, they say, something must be done for this set of hurting people. Something must be done for this form of injustice. So at least one person has a heart, and then they start to rally others, and then as they have this faith, it leads toward, it leads toward something more than just, you know, like, okay, I'll, let me just hand you $5, I go on my way, all right? So that's something really important. On the, as individuals, we must take in this vision, but we can't do it our, by ourselves. And there's one more thing I want to say before I move to part two of my message. I said this a few weeks ago, and I want to say it again because it's important. Sometimes people hear this thing, and all you hear is just, be a good person. <laughs> be a good person, and of course we're supposed to help the poor, so can you just be a better person? And there's a very strong temptation to do this. And I've told you that there's some, some Christians, whenever they hear a message like this about ambitiously seeking to um, love and show mercy to our neighbors, not unlike this good Samaritan who does tremendous sacrifice, and has, a, has an incredible ambition to, to love this one neighbor who's not even, some, probably someone who race, in a racist way hate him. Hate him. But, um, you know, when people hear this, they tend to just say, oh, that's just like trying to solve world hunger or something like that. And it's, there's this kind of cynicism that can easily set in. And one of the things I want to warn you to do this is when Jesus teaches us, he's not giving us a law. He's not saying be a do-gooder or be a good person. And if that's the only way we can operate, I'm sorry, we're not really being Christians. We're really being more like Pharisees that's just saying, this is just my righteousness, and that's it. And because Jesus never said to fix the world. He didn't say that. Only he is the redeemer that can heal the whole world. But you know what he did tell us to do? Show love and mercy to a neighbor. He didn't say fix all the world. Show love and mercy, maybe even just one neighbor. Maybe even just, you know, so we're so practical in, 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 in the West. We like to, if we don't reach the masses or fix all, you know, all heal, you know, give food to everybody who's hungry in the world, then, you know, uh, you know, we're just, so that's how we tend to think. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, love a neighbor. Maybe a very specific kind of hurting person. In the, in, in, we have a ministry in our church um, that's for special needs um, young people. Um, you know how many people come to that? So we have a special service. It's called the, the Sarang Jigi service, which in Korean literally means to sow in love. And it's to offer the gospel worship to those who are, you know, developmentally disabled and are special needs. That ministry, when it was started, typically had four young people come for service. 
You know, I think we're up to like nine or ten now. So it's beginning, and we actually have the problem, which is a beautiful problem, that that room is packed, and now you know, actually our um, our elders or deacons are thinking about you know, so maybe breaking down, so changing some things up so that we can accommodate that ministry. And if you're cynical and you tend to think more in this kind of legalistic way of heal the world, oh, it's only four people. I guess that's not much. Really? Not according to this passage. Not according to this passage. It's beautiful. The Lord, of course, loves all hurting people, but he also loves one. And Jesus did it too. He would walk into a crowd. Tons of people are sick. And this is Jesus. You don't think he has compassion on all of them? In one sense, he does, because he has the capacity to have compassion on all of them. But it's strange. He heals one. And so we're not called to go out and fix the world. Maybe there is some form of hurting and weakness of, of somebody, of, of, of poverty and hurting in our midst that God brings into before your life, before our life. And we can make a difference to either maybe a few or at least, and that's our call. Okay, that's part one. Let's go to part two. What kind of mercy should we pursue? And what I would like to do is teach you um, a couple of insights out of this book. The name of this book is When Helping Hurts. And it's written by a guy named Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, F-I-K-K-E-R-T, for those of you guys who are interested. Um, let me just make a plug for this book. This is, this is the, actually, the, the later version is, it looks slightly different because they have a, a, an updated, this is an older version. Um, if you, whichever one, get either one, they're all fantastic. The second one has some newer content, so it is worth it to get the later, uh, later edition. If I had my way, every single Christian would read this book. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If I had my way, every single one of the members of my church would read this book at least once, if not one. I think this book is right up there with C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity as one of the most important books written in recent years, in, re in recent decades, even centuries. It is that good. And if we are going to do, be ministers of mercy, guess what? Most of us have a very narrow conception of what this means. I mean, we, we don't live in a society where we, we just seek poverty or encountering hurt uh, on a regular basis. We do, but, you know, it's, it's covered up to us. So it's not as, like, in your face as, like, if you lived in, say, Mumbai or if you lived in, you know, like, um, if you lived in an African city. But in America, there's lots of hurt. And we tend to only tend to think of, like, maybe the beggar on the street or soup kitchen. That's how we think. <laughs> but if we're going to be really effective as of, of, um, in terms of ministering in mercy, we need to have more than that. And one of the most important insights that I want to offer to you is what he calls um, relief, rehabilitation, or development. All those are forms of mercy, but they're different. So let me just give you some distinctions. Number one, relief. Relief is what we usually typically tend to think of. So what they're saying is it's something that you offer to someone who has kind of an emergency need and they have no other way to fill it. So if, if, if a person is naked or they're cold and we get them warmer clothes in the winter and they have no other way to afford it. Or, or you, know, you, you meet a beggar on the street and they have no idea where their next meal and they're asking you for a, a few dollars or something. for That would be relief ministry. Um, some of the people who are sleeping on the streets and they come to you know, a soup kitchen that's a form of relief ministry. It's really good ministry. 
but it's also the lowest form of ministry, of mercy ministry. And the reason it's so common is because, quite frankly, it's simple. It's easy to do. It doesn't take much time. It doesn't take much cost. And we can all do it. And, and most of us, even when we're in the church, when we think about, oh, well, let's go help the poor, what immediately most, most people think, look, so if I give up a Saturday morning and I go to the soup kitchen and help them, then that would be you know, kind of like my, my little two, two, you know, two cents of duty for my king, right? But that's still only one version of mercy ministry. And the authors of this book, by the way, like Steve Corbett is a pastor who's worked a lot with a lot of, of, of poor and hurting people, fantastic minister of mercy. Brian Fickert is an economics professor. Um, I actually um, heard Brian Fickert um, teach in person. The, the guy is a middle-aged white, I mean, economics professor, what do you, what do you expect? <laughs> he's a middle-aged white guy, um, and he's six foot 10, so he, he's a giant. Literally, when you look at him, you're like this, and you have to go like this, okay? I mean, he's right up there in the NBA range, and um, they, they co-wrote this book together. And one of the things that they say is that the, the vast majority of, of churches, they tend to do relief ministry. But actually, the kind of mercy ministry that we Americans in, um, should do the least of is relief. <laughs> because quite frankly, a lot of the number of people, you should, the, the person that is like asking money from you, he actually probably can find another way to go get food. He can go get food over there. So do you need to go do that now? So actually, that's actually the least needed kind of mercy ministry in America. But what is tremendously needed is rehabilitation and development. Now, what are those? Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, the way I, the picture I think of it is a person has fallen down and maybe gone into a hole, and they can't function for themselves. And they need to be picked up. So they need someone needs to go into that hole and help them to climb out and help them to be able to walk on their own. And so today, a number of our church members are, are going into one of the most beautiful rehabilitation ministries that our city offers, and that is Heritage Home. And what does Heritage Home do? It offers a, a place of safety for women who had an unintended pregnancy, and a number of them may have, like, drug issues. And so they have a pregnancy. They're desperate. They, they don't know what they're going to do with this baby. Um, and they may be on drugs. They can't get a job. Um, sometimes they're coming out of an abusive relationship. And so Heritage Homes offers, you can stay in this house for free for a whole year, a place of safety. And then they offer you the gospel. And then they'll come alongside of you to help you, to help you beat your addiction. And then begin, so like maybe you, there's all kinds of things you may need. Maybe you need some, some job training. Maybe you need to get someone to help you with your, to get, um, to finish school, a GED. And of course, just a crew of people to come alongside and love you so that you don't fall into despair or just give up. That's rehabilitation ministry. They are in a place where they are like desperate, and then to help them pick them up and take them back. And then actually, if they can open up doors and help find them job opportunities, that's development. So what what is development? That is to take a person where they're at and not just leave them there, not just take them out of the hole. Now they're okay. Now you can kind of function for yourself. But how about? Instead of just having that low-paying job, how about if we can help you gain some new skills? Oh, you don't know about like um, how, to, how to write a good resume? Or you don't have skills about how to do interviewing? 
Or maybe there are some real disadvantages that are that's happening because you're of a certain skin color and people, or there's certain kinds of like racist attitudes toward you, and then maybe I can make a difference there. So development ministry, I mean, this is interesting. Development ministry could be something like this. How about if you go and um, get active in your school board, or maybe not your school board, but the school board on the other side of town where they have far less resources, and you may not be helping to try to um, help a person that's very, a specific poor person that you know, but if you help that school develop and go to a whole nother place. Now you're, you, you can help raise, you can help raise up out of poverty a whole class of people. See? That's development ministry. So to take them to a whole nother place. So starting schools. <laughs> um, uh, even things like, even things like, um, I, I, when, when I was um, doing my master's work, I, um, I worked part time at a church in South Boston. South Boston is poor white. And this church had a music and art program because guess what? In the poor public schools in South Boston, they cut all those programs. There's no music and art in any of the schools. So one of the pastors, he offered a music and art program. Why? Because they should be developed. You are a human being. You have wonderful skills, and your full humanity should be developed. And so he got grants. He raised funds. He got volunteers, and then he eventually hired a guy like me to run this program. That's development ministry. And um, so what kind of mercy should we do? Should we only do the simple and the doable? If so, then, you know, we're going to, or maybe what we can do is find a way to make a difference. Um, Let me even just throw this at you. (laughs) This is really interesting, Sometimes um, people who do relief, the church shouldn't, maybe the one church can't even do all three. Because if you're good at one, sometimes you're not even good at the other. So if you're good at like immediate compassion, let me help you out there. You're hungry. I'm, like, we'll give you money right now. Well, that, that requires certain strengths of, 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 of character. But maybe the person who is in that state is a person that, um, that lost their home they have, because they don't have any financial discipline or financial knowledge. So they don't know how to pay back their debts. And so they need understanding about how the bank system works, how interest rates work. And then sometimes people live in neighborhoods where there are no decent banks. So again, another piece of development. So the only place they can get a short-term loan, and because they're, they're desperate, they need a loan, is to go to the local loan shark who just charged an exorbitant, which is probably illegal amounts of interest. But so what if someone comes and says, we're going to offer you rehabilitation and development ministry by not only teaching you about financial, um, the way the finances work in the world, but then we'll walk alongside you so that we, you can learn, you can learn financial discipline and responsibility. You think everybody wants to do that? That's not easy. So sometimes they're going to do this, and then they're going to fail, and they're going to default. And you know what it's going to take? Some discipline it's going to take in order to teach them to do this mercy, to this piece of, of ministry? You actually have to show them tough love. Well, you, well, you blew it. You're not supposed to do that. So now you're going to have to pay some of the consequences. I'm not going to bail you out by handing you some money. So some of the people who are good at the relief may not be very good at this part. <laughs> and so they actually say, sometimes you need, churches need to do different things if you want to do this type of, of, of mercy ministry. And so these are some of the things that you can learn out of this book. Please read this book. I mean, great piece of Christmas reading. <laughs> it really will be. And after you learn, and by the way, this just will get you, and there are classes 
at the Mercy Ministry uh, Center that some of these guys run at the Chalmers Center. Thomas Chalmers was a famous pastor, great in ministry. It's named after him. The Chalmers Center is um, a Mercy Ministry kind of think tank out of um, the Presbyterian Church in America. And so you, there's even more that you can learn. But would you start? So what kind of ministry? Now let me move to the close of my message. It's also an insight that we got out of this book. Um, that we serve a God who calls us to be fully human. You know one of the biggest problems in, um, in, in mercy ministry is that we encounter people who are poor and who are hurting, and then guess what? When we actually try to minister to them, we find out we don't like them. Oh, oh, you lie and you steal. I don't like you. Oh, you, you know, I think you're lazy. You, you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you're not very reliable to show up for work. So no wonder you're poor. Or, you know, and then we begin to look, up, we look down upon them because I know how to, like, you know, I don't fall into debt so easily. So one of the things that they, uh, one of the, the critiques they make and one of the big problems, and this is why this book is called When Helping Hurts. Not just, we think we're helping the people who are poor and hurting, but we're actually hurting them. And then, we, and then the process by which we try to do it with our own righteousness and with our very limited wisdom, which isn't even really wisdom, we end up hurting ourselves. And so they have this great piece in there that says, one, first, we look at poverty primarily as about money. It's material poverty. Oh, you don't have enough clothes. You don't have mo enough money. You don't have enough shelter. You don't have enough food. Okay, you're poor. I have all those things. <laughs> and therefore... I guess I'm rich and I should be nice to you. That very definition is the road to how we end up hurting other people and ourselves. That's one. Then the second thing, because we have this limited way that we think of poverty as this material thing, then what we do is we reduce the humanity down to economics. And then when we go, I am superior in economics and finances, you are inferior. Now let me, because I'm such a good, kind person, come here and, here and help you. And what we, we're not looking at the whole of their humanity. Because one, one of the very first things in this book, it teaches you, and it, I think it's fantastic, it teaches you biblical, some biblical, sound biblical theology. That's one of the first things the book does. Because our real poverty isn't just lack of money or food or clothes or job. It's a poverty of relationship. It's a poverty of possibility of what it means to be human. It's a poverty that we don't have God and his will. I mean, and so it's a whole poverty of the fact that we don't know how to be fully human. Human made in the image of God. You know, we live, um, you guys ever watch these uh, documentaries where a lion eats a zebra? <laughs> Why does the lion eat the zebra? Because he can. <laughs> I'm hungry, and you're weak, and you look like lunch. You know what? That's the way our, our, our world works. The rich can abuse the poor. And why can we ignore that neighborhood over there and give them substandard schools? Because we can. And when we treat our neighbors who are hurting that way, we're being less than human. We're really being more like animals. I want to share with you a story, and then I'll close this message. Um, this is from Brian Fickert. 
He says what we end up having is first we define everything by material, and then when we go to the poor, and then we get, he calls them God complexes. We get a God complex looking down upon them, and then they feel inferior, we feel superior, and of course the whole thing is going to break and fall apart. And one of the, the, the practices that they urge us to do is so when you go and meet with people who are hurting or poor, don't ask them what their need is because then immediately going to, attention is going to be placed upon their lack. They're going to look at their lack and we're going to look at their lack and then we're going to look at materiality instead of looking at their whole humanity. And who is God for them? Instead, he says, go in there and ask, what are they good at? What has God already given them? And see their whole humanity. So he tells a story. So during Sunday school, during the Sunday school, so this is an adult Sunday school, he took this class. Our class visited a low-income housing project with which we wanted to develop a relationship. Each member of the class individually went door to door saying to people, hello, I'm from the Community Presbyterian Church, the church just around the corner. We're conducting a survey today to find out what gifts God has placed in this community. This is a project. What skills and abilities do you have? This is what he's asking. So after the person opens the door. The truth is, I want you to die. <laughs> Racial tensions are still very present in our city. So I knew there would be at least some social discomfort for both the African-American residents of this housing project and for me. You think that's a little bit of an <laughs> understatement there? A little social, just a little social discomfort. Furthermore, my height can be quite startling and intimidating, <laughs> um, adding awkwardness to virtually all first encounters. I mean, the guy is literally a giant. And finally, the words I was supposed to repeat sounded totally hokey to me. I'm from the church. Well, what are you good at? I mean, what the heck? <laughs> Yuck. I would rather be selling Girl Scout cookies. I had a bad attitude about this exercise and wished I had chosen to attend the Sunday school class that was examining the finer points of Presbyterianism. That's what I, oh gosh, why didn't I take that class? But instead, at last, I had chosen this class, so here, here we was doing what he was supposed to do. The 30-something African-American woman who cracked open the door slightly was about five foot two. And she had a nice, wonderful view of my belly. <laughs> She looked up, up at me at the way you would look at, first, at a person would look at the first time they ever saw a Martian, like. And then I tried not to flinch, and then I went into my sales pitch. I'm from the Community Presbyterian Church, blah, blah, blah. She said, what? <laughs> Looking even more incredulous than before. In my mind, I thought she was thinking, so the Martian can talk, and boy, does he say strange things. <laughs> I swallowed hard and repeated, what skills do you have? What, what are you good at? And she said, what? <laughs> and then I repeated my question again, asking God, I need some, like, some jewels added to my crown up in heaven for doing this. <laughs> Jesus. And getting past her incredulous at the entire situation, the lady said sheepishly, okay, I guess I can cook. Suddenly, a voice from the dark unknown behind the lady shouted out, she can cook chitlins like there is no tomorrow. <laughs> and another voice yelled, yeah, ain't nobody can cook as good as she can. 
Slowly, a smile spread across her face and said, yes, I think I can cook. And the next thing I knew, I found myself sitting in the living room with about six African-Americans gathered around. I live in the South. This does not happen easily. <laughs> not sure what to do. I, went, I reverted back to the script. I'm from the Presbyterian Church, blah, blah. This is so, <laughs> what, what are you good at, right? And they took it from there. This is Joe. He can fix bikes. Whenever one of the bikes in the project has a bike, and whenever the kids in the project has a bike that needs fixing, Joe's the guy. A smile spread across Joe's face. And this here is Mac. How is your car running? If you ever have trouble with your car, bring it right here to Mac. I noticed that Mac started to sit up a little straighter in his chair. They went on and on, bragging about one another, and all I had to do was sit there and write it all down. So we got an inventory of people's assets that day. That's what they call them, an inventory of what they're good at. An inventory that we later used to help the residents dream about how to solve some of their problems. But more importantly, we started a process of empowering them. Empowering them. Not us being the good, righteous saviors and you, the poor people, but no, you're really fully human. Made in the image of God. I want to empower you to be in his image. What gifts do you have? When one is feeling marginalized and broken down in the culture, such a question is nothing short of a revolution. Brothers and sisters, this is how we are. We, we're Christians, but then when we go outside, we operate like Pharisees. And we don't have faith, and we don't look at people in their full humanity, and we don't operate in our full humanity. We don't operate in the image of God. We operate more like the stronger animals going to the weaker animals, filled with our superiority and helping them feel inferior and more despair and needy. But there was the greatest Samaritan of all time. Actually, he wasn't a Samaritan. He was a Jew. And you know who I'm talking about. He came to us and said, you have a much bigger lack than money. And you're in the deepest hole there ever was. That is death, sin, and curse. And I'm going to stop. And I'll bind up your wounds. And I'll put you on my animal. And I'll take you to my house. And I'll pay whatever it takes to heal you of your wounds. To give you relief from all your guilt and shame to rehabilitate you from everything that's broken in the, in, the in the depths of your poverty of humanity, and then to develop you to become a glorious son and daughter made in the image of God like you were always meant to be. That person's name is Jesus. More than money, he gave us his life. He gave us his time. He gave us his blood. He gave us his forgiveness. He gave us a new name and developed us so that we could be fully human and be a little more divine and not like animals and love our neighbors with mercy. Let's go to the table of the Lord. Dear Jesus,
you offer this meal to those made in your image. But regularly, we would rather be lions that eat zebras or look down upon them anyway. Oh, they're a different skin color. Oh, they're not like one of us. And I'm busy. But thank you, Lord Jesus. You are not too busy. And you are not in a hurry. And you said, I will pay what it takes to offer them mercy so they can be, radiate the glory of God. So we thank you for that great piece of mercy upon us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would convict us, you would give us great joy and faith to believe in that and then offer that to our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.